Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today is Bridget's Day and that's the day to celebrate Ireland's only matron saint, a woman who is just as important perhaps as St. Patrick and thankfully in recent years she's been getting a lot more of a look in. Also today marks the beginning of Imbolc which is the beginning of spring and I'm not getting into arguments about whether spring starts today or next month because I think we all need the idea of spring and of growth and rejuvenation and change. So come on, let's go with it. This January is finally over. We're into February. I'm hoping and trying to stay positive. Um, Bridget is known as a saint. And you remember making the Bridget's crosses in school, some of us anyway. But of course, she was actually a goddess celebrated in ancient times during Imbolc, which was the pre-Christian pagan festival. And people used to try to get Bridget's blessings by making a bed for her and leaving food and items of clothing outside for her to bless. And it was thought that she protected homes and livestock. So happy Bridget's Day. And there are a couple of things going on today to celebrate her and to mark Bridget's Day. First of all, the spectacular Her Story light show by Dodeca is going to illuminate iconic landmarks across Ireland and this time it's in honour of the mother and baby homes victims, COVID heroines and heroes, Black Lives Matter, women who have arrived and all the Bridgets of the world. And this year the Her Story Light Show goes into the heart of Ireland where St Bridget's Cathedral in Kildare, Sean Ross Abbey in Ross Grey, Athlone Castle and Belvedere House in Westmeath and Burr Castle in County Offaly are going to be lit up to lift Ireland's spirits and celebrate the return of the light. So that's happening all over the country today. And just a reminder that her story is calling on the Irish public and our diaspora to sign the petition, which you can find online, to make Bridget's Day a national holiday and to celebrate Ireland's triple goddess and matron saint, Bridget, equally to our world-renowned patron saint, Patrick. And I support that. I think Bridget's Day would be a great national holiday and it would be great to have a woman represented on a national holiday. So on this first day of spring or first day of Imbolc anyway, there is also a campaign launching to call on the Irish government to adopt a zero COVID strategy for Ireland. And if you want to find out more about that, go to the We Can Be Zero website. It's at wecanbezero.com and it's the People's Campaign made up of voices from across Ireland, people who want the government to change their strategy 
around COVID. There is a public meeting online at 1.30pm today, the 1st of February. So if zero COVID is something you were interested in or curious about or passionate about, then it's definitely worth checking out. WeCanBeZero.com. Now, it is Bridget's day, but we're not going to be talking about that Bridget today. We are all about bad Bridget's on this episode. The millions of Irish girls and women who emigrated to North America in the 19th and early 20th centuries tend to be remembered, if at all, as domestic servants, cooks, wives and mothers. A reputation for diligence and rectitude cast them as the unsung heroes of a diaspora that went on to conquer US business and politics. But there is an untold chapter in the Irish emigrant experience because many girls and women were in fact sex workers, thieves and drunkards, even killers. And there were loads of them filling the prisons in Boston, New York and Toronto. Two Northern Ireland-based academics have found their stories from police, court and prison records and they came up with a great name for the transgressors Bad Bridgets. Elaine Farrell is with Queen's University Belfast and Leanne McCormack is with Ulster University and they say they were completely overwhelmed by the sheer number of Irish women in records relating to crime and punishment. The two historians have a fantastic five-part podcast series titled Bad Bridgets and they're also working on a book based on five years of research funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. The actor Siobhan McSweeney, who plays Sister Michael in Derry Girls, is also featured in the podcast. And speaking of Siobhan, I don't know if any of you caught her in Happy Days last night, live from the Olympia Theatre, but my goodness, it was very special. But back to bad Bridget's on Bridget's Day, and I really hope you enjoy finding out more about them. So, Leanne, it's Bridget's Day today uh, and you're uh, the co-host of the Bad Bridget's podcast. How did you come up with Bad Bridget in the first place? Well, we had been sort of using the term Bad Bridget for the project kind of informally. Um, Bridget being a really popular name for Irish women in the, the 19th century and and Biddy being used in a sort of derogatory way for Irish women servants in America. So we, we'd sort of been been, you know, sort of really in a kind of joking way saying oh yeah it's, it's sort of all our bad Bridgets um, but then we began to think you know maybe this actually would be a good name for the project and it would really you know it would it would tell very quickly what the project was about um, and there we were and we did a we then thought hang on we'll just do a quick google to check that it was nobody's porn name um, ah. it wasn't but of course we were on university computers that were all firewalled and and I don't know why we didn't why we thought that would all be you know it would show up anyway, um, but bad Bridget, bad Bridget, it became, uh, and and I think it it's been a really good name for sort of selling what what the telling people what the project's about. Yeah, I think it's an excellent name. And then Elaine, so that's the name, and it's all very well having a working title and and deciding on what you're going to call it. But tell us more about what was behind it, how you both came together to be so interested in these women that were sort of, I suppose, in the shadows. Very much when we think of um, Irish people going abroad in the diaspora, we're looking for these people who've achieved things and who made a mark and who, who sort of contributed to American society. And these women are, I suppose, the complete opposite of that. So what intrigued you both about that whole world? Yeah, I suppose our 
our aim was to try to explore the lived realities um, for these Irish girls and women who had migrated to the US and Canada across the 19th um, and the 20th century. And, and I suppose looking at how and why they found themselves in court or under arrest or suspected of criminal um, or deviant activity. And Leanne and I had independently been looking at um, Irish women in the US. So Leanne had been looking in New York and I had been looking in Boston and we decided to to join forces um, and we applied for funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council and um, which we secured and, and so then we had the, the funding to be able to do a much um, larger project. So it was across five years uh, trawling uh, through uh, records in archives um, across New York, Boston and Toronto. Okay, well, listen, let's talk about New York first, because some of the statistics that you uncovered um, about women, the women prison population were fascinating. I mean, it was quite astounding, really, and, and really surprising. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were completely overwhelmed by the figures. We knew that there were going to be large numbers of Irish women there. We assumed because large numbers of Irish women migrated. Um, but we weren't expecting the sheer volume of cases um, that we found. Um, and I went over to, to Boston, um, I was over for four weeks and, and it was like, there's, I'm just not going to be able to collect every single case. There was just so many. So it was really, really overwhelming. But we have, you know, statistics like Irish women representing 60% of the prison population in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s. So it means they outnumber every single other nationality combined. Um, and, you know, you mentioned New York, Roisin, and and. In New York, Leanne found in 1862 that there were 14, more than 14,000 Irish women um, in prison, which represented 86% of the prison population. And even more striking was there were, at, in the same year, there were just over 11,000 Irish men in prison. So actually, Irish women are outnumbering Irish men, which is extremely unusual um, in criminal statistics. Leanne, can you paint a picture for us about the kind of Ireland um, these women were leaving in the 19th century, in the early early 20th century? Yeah, so, I mean, this will obviously sort of change, changes over time as we move into the 20th century, but particularly for the, the women in, in the early decades of our research, they're leaving behind um, generally really poverty-stricken conditions. They're um, emigrating either in, in the middle or, or in the aftermath of, of the famine, um, and and often that that poverty is what's prompting them to to migrate. Their families need them to go. They're seen as a good financial bet and a financial financial source of of, of income. Um, and these women are expected, you know, very young women expected to travel often on their own um, to North America to get a job and to be able to send money back and potentially then for other family members to be able to emigrate as well. Um, and obviously women of all all um, socioeconomic classes are migrating, but, um, you know, the bad bridges that we come across most often and, and the ones that we see getting into trouble are very often coming from um, often quite, quite poverty stricken situations back in Ireland. Um, I suppose there's also limited job opportunities for women in Ireland. So so for some, they're looking for that employment that, that they can secure abroad. And Irish women's, um, Irish girls' education is also quite patchy. And we can see this coming up in some of the prison records where they have to describe what their education is like. And, you know, they're saying that, um, 
you know, they they needed, they couldn't go to school because they needed to help on the family farm or there was a, a bereavement in the family and their mother perhaps, and they had to raise the younger siblings. Um, we have one example, um, Maggie Brennan, she was charged with theft in 1898 when she was um, 20 and she describes her education and she said she had a little bit of schooling up to the age of 10, but then she left completely. She got married at the age of 15 um, within a year, she was pregnant and her husband had died. So she left her baby with her mother um, in Ireland and she migrated um, to the US. And she said that it was there that she kind of learned to, to keep bad company and learned um, to drink. But we can just see the, the, the kind of the young age um, of these girls going over and the kind of lives that they had left behind. Yeah. And Leanne, so what is it? I mean, in a general sense, we'll, we'll get into more uh, some of the specific characters that you describe in your podcast, which is brilliant, by the way. Um, but what were the bad things that these this 86 percent of the female population, for example, in New York were Irish? It's just an incredible figure. What were they doing? What were they getting up to? And what was what were the crimes that was landing them in prison? I mean, we, we see the whole range of crimes, really. But um, I suppose the big, the biggest sort of area and the biggest um, kind of type of crime that we do see Irish women committing is generally related to alcohol. Um, and that comes very striking, comes through very clearly in, in the records. So it might have been um, being just being drunk. It might have been being drunk and disorderly. Um, it also often disorderly conduct was put down and that could refer to being involved in some type of sex work as well. Um, it was a sort of catch-all term too, but... It's it's comes through very clearly um, the the impact and the influence of, of alcohol um, on a lot of crimes too, and as well as that we have, you know, women for theft, for for pickpocketing, for other kinds of of um, theft, and then right through to women for violent crimes, for assault and and for murder as well. It's a five part project, your podcast. So you actually have a one of your episodes is just called, I think, Drunkards or Drunk or something like that. What what did you find out when you were exploring the kind of how much alcohol um, played a part in these women's lives and what were they doing? I mean, I think what's very striking and what came through and, and some of the great newspaper reports on, on this as well were often these large groups of women of Irish women drinking together and drinking on the street um, and we we found some great ones f- for Toronto um, and I think probably they had some kind of great court reporter there with who who is these really really you know vivid descriptions and talks about you know the uh, w- what the women were doing how there's you know there's one woman describing telling everybody what's for lunch whenever you go to into jail and and very much the kind of how they're they really just do not care that they're there um and and one of the very interesting groups we saw was this sort of intergenerational drinking so there's there's a woman in her 80s you know there's some women maybe in their 50s and 60s right down to kind of women in their early 20s and you know that sort of gives a paints a picture of these women all together on the streets and often outside because their housing conditions aren't great or also to do with the if it, if it's it's warm where the, where the weather is very warm they're all outside um and when they're outside they're probably making a lot of noise they're they're making a nuisance of themselves they mightn't be doing anything actually criminal as such but their presence on the street um is often enough for them to be to be arrested and to be brought in and they're they're easy arrests as well you know you can scoop up this this sort of group of of women and and bring them in too um, but what what that did often show us in sort of 
say that for probably some of these women, they may not have had um, permanent addresses. They may have been homeless. They may have been vagrancy was also a, another common crime that women were arrested for. So, you know, in these big groups of women, while alcohol is very involved, it does tell us a lot about probably the very poor living conditions that, that a lot of them were, were under as well. And Elaine, um, Leanne sort of mentioned it there a little bit. Sex work features largely um, in terms of, the again, the percentage of Irish women who are involved in it. Tell us a little bit about that, what you uncovered when you started to dig into that. Yeah, um, I suppose the the initial um, research that had been done, you know, in the, the 1980s, early 1990s had been, you know, Irish women are, are very chaste and moral um, in Ireland and elsewhere and, and not really all that involved in sex work. But I suppose if you're looking at particular records, you can see that there are large numbers um, of Irish women who are engaged in sex work. And I suppose there's a, a flexibility um, to the the job as that might have attracted um, some individuals. Of course, um, it pays, uh, you know, for some it's paying quite well, depending on what end, um, what end of the, the kind of spectrum that, that people are working in. Um, and it's also what we can see in Ireland um, as well as um, in the US is that it's also seasonal. So women are kind of moving into sex work and then moving out of it um, when they have other employment. And for some, you know, domestic employ- domestic service was the biggest employer um, of Irish women in the US. But at the same time, for some that just wasn't um, suitable that, you know, that they um, some women express their their kind of um, dissatisfaction with that post where somebody is is kind of monitoring their behavior all the time and maybe they're not um, getting they're not having enough savings and maybe they're not having um, they're, they can't dictate their own hours. And for women who had children as well, um, domestic service would have been a very difficult um, position. So we see a lot of Irish women popping up in sex work and um, some you know, Leanne has mentioned the women who um, we we can kind of see who are homeless because they're coming in and out of different institutions at different points. And um, so definitely there's some women working in that category. But we have other women who are working in quite um, lavish situations, you know, in, in boarding houses and and clearly doing quite well um, for themselves working as um, escorts. And keeping brothels as well, because there, there was also people in charge of other women and making a business out of it. Yeah, there was a, a concern at the time um, that Irish women, Irish girls were being duped into sex work, um, you know, that they were being convinced at the port that this person who had met them was going to take them to a, a really good domestic service position and instead was moving them into a brothel. Um, and we do have those kind of examples, but but we can also see that there's Irish women running those kind of um uh, running those kind of systems, you know, that they're using their Irishness as a way to kind of convince girls to come and join them, that that they're uh, that they're good people and they'll look out for them. So yeah, we have Irish women, um, you know, head heading those kind of uh, systems as well. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's really interesting what you said about the ideal or the stereotype of the Irish woman, the kind of chaste and virtuous, especially coming from, you know, say pious Ireland's land of saints and scholars and all of that, um, but. And whatever you think, I mean, obviously, some of the things they were doing were very, very bad and criminal um, and wrong. But there was an ingenuity as well and an enterprising nature there that was going on that isn't often kind of thought of when you think of the Irish women who went away at that time. Did you find yourself kind of looking and in any kind of admiring way at these women, even though obviously they were there was a lot of criminality? 
Yeah, I mean, some of the the stories are are funny. You know, you can really see these the characters coming out. They're you know they're they're given a socks in the court. They're not going to let anybody criticize them. You know, they're the judge will say something and they're right back at them straight away. So so we do see a lot of those kind of characters, and um, which are definitely um like a kind of a relief to looking at the really sad and and often quite um depressing stories. But I, I think you're completely right, Roisin. We really need to see Irish women's agency in many of these crimes. You know, we have women who are making calculated decisions to engage in criminal or deviant activity. Um, and I don't think we should allow that kind of, oh, you know, they were poor and we feel sorry for them. We shouldn't allow that to kind of overshadow um, their own agency in the whole process. And yet, of course, as you said, there are some really, really sad stories and stories born of absolute terrible life circumstances. And one of them particularly I was looking at was about Rosie Quinn. Leanne, can you tell us about her? She was only 19 and then she was sentenced to life in prison. It's a really sad story. Yeah, it is. It is a really sad story. And it's it's sort of one of the the stories where we hear a little bit more about her because um, there there is a campaign to to get her pardoned um, for her crime because ordinarily without that we probably wouldn't know very much about her. She would just be sort of a, a, a name on the page but she was found guilty of um, throwing her newborn baby um, into the lake in Central Park. She's working um, in a hotel and it's really from the people that she works with in the hotel and what seem to be some of the guests actually in the hotel who are who are essentially saying she was, you know, she's a she's an innocent Irish girl. She was taken advantage of by by this this man who who has sort of duped her. And, and that's very much the impression in the letters that's that's given about her is that she's this, you know, innocent um migrant. You know, she's she knows she knows very little. Nearly nearly the sort of the Virgin, the sort of ignorant Irish girl that she she doesn't, you know, um, that's where the sympathy is coming from. Her sort of God lover, um, you know, she knew no better. She was taken advantage of. Um, she got pregnant, and then her story is that she tried to get, um, she tried to get some help. She tried to get into a home. She tried to find somewhere to stay, and they sent her away. And there was there was nowhere to go. Uh, and that this was this was the situation that she sort of didn't didn't mean to do it. That it was a that it was an accident. So. There are these kind of issues that um that she's saying are are kind of that didn't happen, but it didn't didn't sort of cut any ice in in the, in the the trial, and it's really afterwards where people are beginning to write letters, and and actually just people of the general public too are writing into the governor to say this. My heart is broken, right? You know, hearing about this, this is just so tragic, and and you know, please please pardon her, and she she is pardoned and she is is released, but it it just sort of shows as well that um you know about this young woman her experiences she's pregnant she's got no support network she's got nowhere to go she doesn't know what to do and that that this was her at the very very you know and she seemed to have exhausted any possibilities of finding help but it is also really amazing even at that time that that people in new york who probably didn't have any connection with her or anything were were taken by this story and knew that a woman driven to do something as awful as that um as throw a baby in the lake in central park that she would have been um that you know not in her right mind essentially or had be so desperate and so worried and uh it's great to see that people came to her aid and she did get pardoned elaine do you what do you feel about rosie's story I think we can really, through Rosie's story, we can really see the the sympathy 
um, attached to women who kind of found themselves in this predicament. So pregnant outside marriage. And there is that kind of um, understanding that there would be stigma and shame attached to that. So there's nearly like a sympathy um, with um, women who then try to uh, not be pregnant. So so whether it's um, through infant murder, um, as in Rosie um, Quinn's case. Um, and I think that sympathy can really show us um, there is uh, there's the sympathy because, of course, the father of that baby is nowhere to be seen. Um, and there was such a stigma attached to giving birth outside marriage um, in Ireland. Um, and, you know, we can see from the recent reports as well, the Commission um, and the um, the Northern Irish report that Leanne authored with a colleague of mine, Sean O'Connell. Um, and, you know, we can really see that that stigma is lasting. You know, it's in the 19th century, but but it lasts right up um, into the, the later um, 20th century as well. And that stigma can, attack, can really affect families. You know, it's a, the woman's reputation, but it's also the family reputation. And so we have um, Irish women who are, they become pregnant um, in Ireland and then they see this migration to the US as a kind of solution to that, that they can hide the fact um, that they have become pregnant and, and given birth outside marriage. And it's through those type of cases that we can see how Irish men were involved or perhaps not even um, involved. You know, we have um, these men who are, are promising that, oh, I'll, you know, I'll come over, I'll, I'll join you in the US. Um, and then, you know, the woman ends up in an institution and that's where we come across her because he never arrived. Um, I can give you one example of a, a woman, Ellen, who's from Galway, um, and she had become pregnant in Boston um, to an Englishman. And by the time the, the baby was born, he's nowhere to be seen. Um, and she's in she's in an institution. And then she decides she's going to go home. She's going to go back to Ireland and she buys a, a passage ticket um, for herself and for her newborn son. And then at the last minute, she changes her mind and she just says, you know, it's going to break her mother's heart if she arrives back um, with the baby. So she heads off on the, the ship and she leaves her baby um, in Massachusetts where he's put up for adoption. And, you know, it's those kind of cases that really show that stigma that was attached to giving birth outside marriage in Ireland. And then it's the same in the US as well. That's the thing that's interesting because, you know, we do, obviously we've been talking so much about the mother and baby homes and well done, Leanne, on, on all your reporting on, on that in the North as well. But um, the fact that there were moral reform institutions, homes for fallen women, sort of the same as we had back home is also interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, sometimes we do we do forget that those those did exist outside of, of, of Ireland, North and South. Um, and you do see a variety of them um, in the cities that we looked at run by some voluntary organisations, um, some run by nuns. We have the Good Shepherds in, in New York running a, a, a rescue home. Um, and actually they become sort of, by the early 20th centuries, one of the main providers of um, uh, sort of probation homes. So taking women directly from prison um the, the Good Shepherd Home was one of the, the main the main um, sources where women would go and stay, operating slightly different than those in, in Ireland where it would have been a shorter term and often just for the term of a sentence um, and then women would have left. Um, but you see um, a variety of institutions and uh, as Elaine said, the thing with these for, for um, unmarried mothers or for homes for women coming out of out of prison, there, there was no great sort of 
sympathy or necessary understanding or different attitudes often for women. And sometimes I think, you know, the women who felt maybe they were they were escaping the the attitudes of home found exactly the same when they they arrived um, in, in North America and found the same attitudes towards illegitimacy and about respectability there as well. But I suppose the benefit was that maybe you were often a bit more anonymous and perhaps you were away from from people at at home who would who would know what had happened. Um, but the downside of that being you're, you don't have a support network. It feels like that. It feels like you can imagine all these women coming to this big bustling place, completely different environment to what they came from, where there was, you know, curtain twitching and everybody in the village knew who you were and everyone in the town. And there must have been a some some kind of freedom, even in the poverty and in the really dire circumstances a lot of them lived in, that they could almost reinvent themselves and do all these things because nobody knew they were the burns from wherever, you know? Is is that something you kind of got to know a bit or, or to understand by reading these stories? We can see this coming up um, quite often for women who are working in factories and um, that there's this kind of um, all the, the girls and women go socialising um, together um, after work. So we can see that that kind of sense of adventure too. And you're completely right where, where these women and girls are leaving predominantly rural Ireland they're arriving in in big cities like Boston, New York and Toronto. Like, can you imagine the sensory shock for many of these girls and women? They have never left their hometown before and now they're on this ship and now they're in this new city. Um, and in terms of the drinking as well, we have um, lots of reports where, where the women are saying, you know, alcohol is so cheap as well and it's so easy to get. And, and I think there is that kind of camaraderie um, as well, you know, uh, sisters going over to sisters and um, there's so much more in these cities uh, to so many more opportunities that they than they would have had um, at home in Ireland. The other thing from a feminist perspective about your research and what you found is that the language ascribed and the way these women are described when they do these terrible things. And there's this sense that they are doing things that are unwomanly, that are not what women are supposed to be doing. Tell us about um, Lizzie Halliday because she was called the worst woman on earth and it's a it's a great story so what was the story with lizzie poor lizzie so lizzie is the um the first woman in the in the us to be sentenced to death by the electric chair and she is caught for um for serial killing really um so her husband uh, disappears and her neighbors um, get concerned, you know, Lizzie is saying, oh, he's gone away for a few days, but the neighbours don't quite believe um, that story. Lizzie has a bit of a criminal record, including um, an arson attack. Um, so the neighbours, when Lizzie is out of the house, the neighbours go and investigate for themselves and they actually find the bodies, two bodies of two other neighbours. Um, and then when the, the police are called, of course, and then the body um, of Lizzie's husband is found under the floorboards. Um, so she's actually so she's sentenced to death, but the um, the courts find that she was instead um, insane, as it would have been been termed at the time. Um, and so she's instead placed in what would have been known as a lunatic asylum. Um, and it's there that she goes on to actually kill one of the attendants. Um, so she has quite this this kind of um, criminal record. And and, you know, she doesn't match up to to that idea of the pure and chaste and well-behaved um, Irish woman. She's presented, um, we had a, a 
a postdoc, Leanne Calvert, who was working on the project as well. And she had found really brilliant articles showing how um, Lizzie is presented in this really animalistic way. You know, she's she's described as a tiger. She's described, she's even, Lizzie is even questioned as to whether or not she might be Jack the Ripper. There's this kind of sense that, you know, if she could do that to her husband and her neighbours, she could probably do anything. And there's so many rumours um, surrounding the mysterious deaths um, of previous husbands as well. So it's just that fact that she she's just defying um, all sorts of expectations of her gender. You know, she's not apologetic. She's not offering any sort of, you know, sad defence or anything that's, you know, a reason for why why she 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 did it. And then then clearly when she goes on to commit these these um other crimes, I mean she clearly has sort of serious mental health issues, but very much, you know, she kills whenever she kills the attendant. She'd already attacked another attendant beforehand, but this attendant that she killed it was because she didn't want her to leave her. And, you know, she was there were there were sort of I think again that that sort of fed into the portrayal of her as being this kind of worst woman and and again, yes, as Lane says, against everything that a woman should be and how she should behave. And where was Lizzie from? She's from some County Antrim somewhere. I mean I'm not claiming her. Um, being in County Antrim at the minute, but um, uh, we're not we're not completely sure where exactly she she's come from, and there there are different. And actually, one of the stories was that she'd murdered a husband in Belfast before she emigrated. But um, we're we're pretty sure she emigrated as a child, so I don't think she'd managed that. But that was one of the other the other crimes, as well as being Jack the Ripper. So tell me about some of your favourite. Bad Bridgets, if we can say favourite. I think it's okay. I presume when you do a research like this, you do get fond of your subjects and the, and the information that you find out about them. Yes, absolutely. And and I also kind of feel like I get sometimes a little bit defensive too. Like if somebody tries to, to criticise it, you know, I'm always like, no, 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 wait. Um, so one of my favourites, uh, I'm a little bit fickle, you know, I have like different favourites, different times. And I think sometimes when I'm researching somebody new as well, I'm, I'm just become so um, kind of obsessed by that uh, case. Um, but one of my favourites is a sex worker in New York, Maud Merrill. Um, and she's working um, in the 1870s and she's doing very well for herself. Um, so she has her own lavishly furnished rooms. We get really vivid descriptions of, you know, beautiful furniture, original art as well, um, where she is in her um, lodging house. She's clearly doing well because she's also attending these balls um, and these dances. Um, and her sister, Charlotte, is also in New York. And both of them um, had been aided to New York by an uncle who had kind of funded um, their passage. And Charlotte um, is 17 and Maud is 19. And Charlotte begs Maud to leave sex work. So she's really concerned about, you know, that idea of family reputation um, as well. And later Maud says, you know, she will, um, that she will, she'll leave sex work, she'll get a job as a domestic servant, um, but not right now. She'll do it after Christmas. So that's a, um, a few weeks away. And that clearly shows us, that's why I like this case too, because it clearly shows us that Maud is making a calculated decision here. She's thinking about the economics um, involved with obviously Christmas coming up and, you know, maybe she'll have um, some extra payments uh, to make. Um, so she's also, I think, probably thinking about her negative past experience as a, as a domestic servant. So she wasn't treated particularly well, um, according to the records, in, in some of the, the places where she was employed. Um, and it, it's a sad ending. Um, and we discussed that 
that case in the podcast. But I like it because it gives us such a good insight into her daily life. You know, these the kind of the dances she was attending and what her family um, in the US and her family um, at home in Cork, uh, what they kind of thought um, about her. Yeah, and, and would you say you're sort of fond of her or fond of the idea of her uh, at this point and defensive of her, you said? <laughs> I'm defensive of loads of them. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I, I feel sympathy for her because she she um, she dies very young. Um, and, you know, that she had it was precisely because of her occupation um, that she died. So I kind of feel like, you know, she she had gone through these employments that didn't quite work for her because of the because of these rumours about her um, her sexual activity, she lost those domestic servant um, positions um, and then found her way into sex work. Um, I like her agency there too, you know, that, that she's making that decision. She, she's kind of owning it um, as well. And, and I suppose that she's doing so well um, for herself and that she's kind of, she's well connected to, you know, there's other women who are um, doing that same type of, um, of sex work who are, are obviously um, really close friends. Uh, too. And uh, what about you, Leanne? Have you got a favourite bad Bridget or favourites? Yes, and I shoehorn her into every, <laughs> every everything we do. <laughs> Elaine changes her mind quite a bit. You know, yeah, she fickle. is fickle, ab- fickle about this. And uh, I stick with um, uh, Marion Canning, who was who actually was a sex worker as as well. And so you're both of your favourites are sex workers. I'm just yeah. going to leave that there with no comment. <laughs> and I think, as Elaine says, you do become you do become sort of invested in their stories and and you you're sort of sometimes you're well you know you're willing them them on and even though you know you're sometimes you feel your moral compass has got a little bit skewed that you know these are people who may have committed crimes and may have done wrong but you're still you know you're you're still sometimes just hoping that you can see often the reasons why they may have ended up doing what they they did um but uh Marion Marion Canning is again another story that we find out more about because um of her her sentence um uh, the, the reports into trying to repeal her her sentence and she's um she's sort of 19 when we come across her in in 1891 in New York and she was a recent um immigrant from from County Leitrim and um she's she's says herself that she's been working in, in sex work for about um about about a year before this this event took place so um and we don't really know what what she'd been doing, but clearly she'd probably fallen on hard times or had difficulty getting a job. Or actually saw this as a bit more lucrative than than um, nearly like Maud and in other in other circumstances. Um, and and the story seems to be that she she met a man um, uh, when she was she was walking home, having been out for dinner. Um, he seemed to have sort of have commissioned her services, and then there's a dispute over paying for this, and he accuses her of taking. Um, his watch and stealing some money um, and a policeman is summoned um, Marion says she didn't do this this was this wasn't and actually when she's taken to the police station there's there's no money there's no watch found on her but she still ends up going um, to court for this um, she's defending herself and you can only imagine that this young um, you know recent immigrant defending herself in this New York court um, even though there's there's absolutely no evidence that she committed this crime it just tells us a lot about her you know her her being a woman her her um, nationality and and everything about being a sex worker as well the kind of whole lots of levels of discrimination she was up against and she's sentenced to seven years in prison um, and where where we probably we wouldn't even 
it wasn't even reported in the news actually at the time, but um, her father back in County Leitrim then writes to the judge um, of the of the the in the case and says, you know, please, I, I don't know what's what's happened here. Please, can you, you know, don't find her guilty? Can you know, please release her. Um, you know, this Irish father's heart's broken. And, and the, the judge writes back and says, actually, the trial has happened. I can't do anything but write to the governor of New York. So this man back somewhere in rural Ireland is then writing to the governor of New York. And when when I found these letters, I was just like, Tillian, do you think these are real? You know, is this, is this possibly true? It, could he have, could he have could this written? And, and we do think they are. And he, he wrote several letters basically, you know, saying, please, you know, please release her. I'll come and, I'll come and get her. I'll come to, I'll come to America. I'll take her home. She'll not bother you again. You know, our hearts are broken. Please let her go. And, and it, these letters, um, do pay off. They, they're, the district attorney relooks at the case. He talks to the policeman who actually wasn't there for the trial. He'd been on holiday and he sort of says, look, I, I didn't even, the man couldn't even really recognise if it was her. I wasn't even going to arrest her. Um, and actually, you know, he said, even even though she is a sex worker, she's 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 a more respectable, she's quite a good girl. She's more sinned against than sinning. And um, she is, she is, her sentence is repealed and she's released. And then her father sort of writes and says, the, the governor writes, obviously, to tell him this has happened. And he says, well, you know, times are a bit tough and I, I can't actually come to America for her, but I'll, I've sent some money and I'll come and get her in Liverpool and, you know, she'll not be back. And and we know that she did leave and we know that she, she got married. So it's this sort of very happy ending. We're fairly sure that, that I imagine what had happened in New York never got mentioned. Absolutely. I'd <laughs> say that was a, like <laughs> the veil was cast over those years. Um what about murder um, and murder cases? We mentioned, uh, obviously, Lizzie Halliday. Uh, I mean, without trying to be sensationalist, but you did find some cases, didn't you, of Irish women who, who had murdered? Tell me about some of them. Yeah, we have several um, cases of women who are in for, for attempted murder sometimes or for violence. We have one woman, Letitia Armstrong, who's in Toronto, um, and she suspects that her husband and her servant are having an affair so she pretends to go to a theatre one night um, and instead she, she comes back a little bit early um, and she catches them in bed together. Um, and so she shoots the um, shoots the servant um, and the, the servant actually loses an eye. So, it, so it's quite a severe um, injury. And it's, you know, there is that kind of um, sense that, oh, you know, the courts are saying obviously she shouldn't have done this, but there is a kind of a a weird sympathy um, with her. And, you know, a comment is made in the court that, you know, it's surprising she didn't actually try to, to shoot the husband, that that might have been actually um, a little bit um, more just. And, you know, those type of cases are are really fascinating. We very often have far more information on those, um, on murder cases than we have on on other, you know, drunkenness or theft. Um, but I suppose they are also a little, they also distort the story um, a little bit because they're not necessarily representative of Irish women's migration to the US just because they're just that bit um, more unusual. So after all of this, it's five years of research. I mean, you've spent so much time delving into it. What are your main findings or what do you feel like you've taken from it or helped to, um, you know, people to understand? Like what what is the big message here about a kind of time in uh, emigration that we think we know a lot, a lot about, but this was stuff we didn't really know about. I mean, it really is uncovering things that had been hidden. 
Yeah, I think we it's kind of showing the complexities of the migration story, that it wasn't just Irish women migrated and they became nuns and teachers and servants and they got married and everything was, was great. And um, I think it's showing how ordinary individuals who migrated, you know, they had these kind of struggles for survival. And just because they appear in court record once doesn't mean that that they're going to have um, a criminal career um, thereafter. So I think it's important to show that kind of the, the poverty angle as well. And what about you, Leanne? What's your main feeling about the work you've done and why it's valuable? Yeah, I mean, I think as Leanne says, it does it does offer a much a much more complex and nuanced picture about emigration. And um, I think sometimes, particularly about Irish-American emigration, there is this looking back with a very rose-tinted view that people's experiences were very positive and everybody who went did really well and, and achieved. And sometimes, and I think it's a, it's a good reminder to realise that that wasn't everybody's experience and that I think perhaps if it's a prompt to say we need to think a bit more broadly about experiences of migration today, um, that things were difficult, that things often didn't work out well, that sometimes I think this, well, we, you know, we all went off and worked really hard and did really well. And this was the, you know, there's so that, that no, that wasn't everybody's experience. Times were tough. Also, people did things when not necessarily because times were tough, but because, you know, with with complete agency and, and that they they committed crimes. Um, so I think it is about offering that sort of different view. Uh, and and again, particularly from the female side of things where very much the, the, the work does often focus on male immigration and male experiences. And again, as Elaine said, there was very narrow views of female immigration. So it's about trying to broaden that out to a, a more holistic picture of what female emigration was as well. And I suppose when you started off five years ago, you never thought you'd end up with a podcast. So Elaine, tell us about that. Has that been a great joy to work on, to put all your stories together? And it's the perfect form for it, really. You two chatting away about these women that you've come to know. I mean, never in a million years did I think I'd be here talking to Roisin Ingle, <laughs> and who I've been reading for years. So this is, is such a, a treat. It makes all those, the five years of, you know, being in, in accommodation, <laughs> sitting by myself, having uh, dry cereal um, worthwhile. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have been uh, taken aback, I suppose, by the um, interest um, in the podcast. Um, I suppose it, it kind of um, it confirms our view in a way that that these are stories that haven't been told, you know, that, that people don't actually um, know what happened to Irish women. And I think Irish women's voices have been um, silenced or overshadowed, their lives have been overshadowed um, for quite a while. And so I think it is important that that um, that the women's history uh, story is told. Um, yeah, I, I mean, in terms of uh, my relationship with Leanne, I mean, we've got to know each other quite well, um, I think, across uh, five years. So so having to speak to each other on the, the podcast uh, was no task at all. Yeah. And Leanne, did you like moving into that arena? And did you find it a great way to sort of bring the stories to life a bit for people? Yeah, I mean, I think as Leanne says, it wasn't something five years ago when we were we were I suppose a little bit before that, when we were putting in for funding for the project, it, you know, we a podcast wasn't even something we vaguely considered doing. Um, and um, I think that when it was suggested and so when we started to do it and we didn't really know, you know, initially what how, we knew the, the sort of style that we did want want to do. But, you know, it was sort of we didn't know whether anybody other than our mums might listen to it, to be honest. So it was just sort of we we, we were, you know, seeing what, what happened and um 
you know, whenever we had, um, you know, Siobhan McSweeney did the the introductions and we had some amazing music um, uh, created uh, for us um, as well. And it just, it did all come together into something that that we thought, yeah, actually, this is is hopefully something people will find really interesting that they will be able to engage with. Um, the episodes aren't too long and that, you know, that we'll be able to tell those stories. And we had found from some of the the public talks that we'd done that people were really interested and were really engaged with it. And, you know, it was great to be able to get those stories out there and for people to to hear it and for it to be accessible. Sometimes, you know, it can get, the stories can get lost and, and academic works and and it was good to be able to just tell those tell those stories in that in that format as well. So what's next for both of you then? What next big project do you have going on? Well, we are um if if any of our um line managers are listening, we are working very hard on the Bad Bridget book and and that um yeah we, we are working on on sort of several publications from the project that we um hope hope will be will be out um soon um and we're also working with um the Ulster American Folk Park um doing an exhibition on Bad Bridget which will will be sort of we're sort of beginning that and hopefully um that will be sort of near the end of the year but that's that's sort of really exciting and we're really looking forward to being able to um see how that that develops and representing the experience of um Irish women particularly in tenement settings um, so, so that's that's sort of our where we're going with Bad Bridget. Okay, well, it's great. So it's it's a story that's going to run and run. It sounds like and has loads of different tentacles off it, which is fantastic. Elaine, finally, just how's the pandemic for you up there in um, Belfast? Are you both finding it difficult? I mean, it's been pretty bad in the north as well as here, and it's it's. I think this is sort of almost the grimmest time it's, since it began in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's also the the kind of anxiety as well and the uncertainty. You know, when I suppose with that, the initial um, lockdown in March, it was very much like, oh, you know, it'll be two, three weeks. And now it's kind of, you know, where is the end? Um, and, and I suppose I also I find it difficult to, to kind of swap between roles. I'm sure everybody's in the same situation, you know, being like, oh, here I am. I'm, I'm teaching my students. And now, you know, here I am minding my four year old. And has he got enough interaction as an only child and all these kind of. Um, concerns um, and obviously you know hearing about people who have you know my students or their family members who have actually um, contracted it and it's just it's just scary. Well let's hope um, I don't know it's trying to be optimistic and hopeful and the vaccinations being rolled out it seems to be doing very well in Northern Ireland like I keep hearing of people even relations of mine that I have up there that uh, uh, that seems to be quite organised uh, hopefully so Let's hope then in, you know, I don't know, six months, maybe, maybe we can do things again. And, but it's been really fascinating talking to you both and well done on your research. And I would encourage everyone to listen to the Bad Bridget's podcast and happy St. Bridget's Day, coincidentally. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. That was Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormick and their podcast is called Bad Bridgets and it really is a great listen. That's all we have time for. Happy Bridgets Day again. If you want to get in touch with us, email the women's podcast at irishtimes.com or visit us on social media at IT Women's Podcast. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.